Let's get started this morning. Um, I want to take a moment and just pray with you all before we start and then get going. So please uh, allow me to just bring us to a moment of silence. To you, O Lord, we lift up our soul. O my God, in you we trust. Make us to know your ways. Whatever sadness, burden, and distraction that may surround us this morning, help us to remember that we belong to you. Whatever sorrows and burden we've carried with us through the nights to this very morning, replace them with your joy, as certainly as the sun rises and chases away the darkness. Fill our souls today with the peace, joy, and hope of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Hope, faith, two huge words in the the Christian belief, the Christian posture, maybe even some say the Christian religion. They sometimes seem a little interchangeable depending on what context or circumstance that you are using them for, but sometimes I think if you see around us in the world today, hope and faith in the modern world's context, it kind of seems like they are used as this blind hope or faith. It's kind of associated when things are bleak, when we don't know what's going to happen next, and it's an act of desperation, or when it seems like defeat is quite certain. For example, sports. How many people love sports in here? Not a whole lot. Oh, okay. Come on. This is Las Vegas. We're becoming a sports town, baby. Let's go. But I'm from good old Wisconsin, and that means I bleed green and gold. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. I get it. You're jealous. But I'm a Packers fan. It's actually, you get banished from Wisconsin if you're not a Packers fan. They kick you out. But on December 3rd, 2015, there was a game between the Detroit Lions and the Green Bay Packers. The game was in Detroit. I was hanging out with a bunch of buddies of mine. We were watching the game. We were super excited. And man, it was a terrible game for the majority of it. It was so bad. The Lions were beating us pretty good for most of the game. And at one point, the Lions were up 20 to nothing. And it was just like, this is miserable. My friends and I were all upset. We were ready to turn the game off. And I remember I kept saying, you've got to have faith. You've got to have hope. As if somehow me saying that you got to have faith and hope had this real impact on the game. It was blind faith. And I was thinking somehow, someway, the Packers were going to win. Fast forward to the last play of the game. Maybe some people are familiar with this game, but the Packers have made a pretty unbelievable comeback to this point, and Detroit was winning 23-21. to Remember, we were down 20 to nothing at one point. And there was no time left on the clock, but a penalty by the Detroit Lions afforded the Packers one more play. The Packers were out of field goal range, so they couldn't kick a field goal. They had to go for what is called a Hail Mary pass, which I think is fitting for what we're talking about this morning. It's the idea that the quarterback throws the ball up in the air and you say a prayer, hoping one of your players will catch it. That is the point of it. And you're thinking, we can do it. Now, my friends were really skeptical at this point. They were still skeptical, but we were just hanging on by a thread. And I remember I kept saying, you got to believe. you got to have faith. we got to have hope. We can do it. We can win this game. And on the, final play, uh, on the final play of the game, Aaron Rodgers, the former quarterback for the Green Bay Packers, now a New York Jet, don't get me started on that whole situation, but Aaron Rodgers gets the ball, he scrambles out of the pocket, he shakes and bakes, does a couple moves, and he takes this step, and he launches the ball in the air, and I remember saying to all my friends, it's going up! And it was in the air, and it seemed like an eternity. 
that seemed like a flicker in an eternity on a moment. And we saw all the players gathering in the end zone together, underneath the ball, waiting for it to come down. We didn't know what was going to happen, and then there it was. Richard Rodgers, the tight end for the Green Bay Packers, reaches up, you see his hands, the ball sticks like a magnet. And he falls into the end zone and scores the game-winning touchdown, a 60-plus-yard touchdown to win the game. And I remember I threw my hands up screaming, and I just feel all my friends tackle me to the floor. And we're all screaming, and they said, you said we would do it. You told us to keep believing. And I was like, I said we would do it. I told you to keep believing. And to me, I felt like I had something to do with the win that day. That game became known as the miracle in Motown. The Apostle Paul this morning, he is going to talk about faith, about biblical faith. And the illustration I just gave you is not biblical faith. (laughs) Biblical faith is more like that of a relationship. For example, my mom. Some of you have met my mom in here. Wild person, but a wonderful person. I love my mom to death, and she loves me to death. She loves me more than anyone in this whole world. I have it on record, so... It's a big deal. Now, my dad, he loves me a lot too, but I'm willing to bet my mom would fight him to the death to prove that she loves me more than him. Absolutely. No doubt in my mind. But if you were to ask me if, I, if my life depended on it, when I put an emergency contact down, I put one person t- down every time that I believe is going to answer the phone. That's my dad. Every single time. I call and I, I just, I know he's going to pick up the phone. And part of that is, even though my mom loves me as much as she she does, I know my dad loves me, but I know his character. And I know his phone etiquette, which is a big deal when you put these numbers down. Think about it. Just remember when you put down an emergency contact, think about how that person is with their phone. Just think about it. But I know his phone etiquette. My dad's the type of person that he has his phone on him, usually all the time. He knows where it is. He always picks up my calls. My mom, on the other hand, is the type of person that will leave her phone on the couch unplugged before she goes to bed. And then she will wake up in the morning absolutely befuddled as to why it's on 10% or dead before she leaves. And you're like, are you kidding? And not to mention, there's been multiple times that she has left the house like for the day, not like a little five-minute trip or something. She's leaving for the day, and she leaves the phone on the kitchen table, and she's gone the whole day. And I'm just like... How do, you, how do you do that? How do you survive? So I have, my faith, I have faith in my dad that he's going to do what he says he does, not because of anything that I do, but because of, um, because of all my trust in everything that he does and that he has established his character to be. Much like our faith, I think it comes to God in this fashion, this relationship aspect through belief in his existence, but belief in his character, belief in what he has done and what he says he's going to do. The passage Hebrews 11.6 this morning, I think, gives us a good example of what biblical faith is supposed to look like. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It is faith in God's character that when lived out, it brings us to actions of not only obedience, but trust. That is Paul's point this morning with the second part of Romans chapter 4. And Paul already has gone pretty extensively into this idea with his audience, specifically the Jewish Christian audience of the time, that we cannot earn our, our salvation. We cannot earn our favor with God through keeping the law or being good enough. There's nothing you or I can do 
to earn righteousness before God. Our identity is rooted in our standing with God, and we are either right before God or we are wrong before him. And the only way to be right with God is through faith in God and the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul spent the first part of this chapter establishing our justified identity only found in the faith of God. I'm going to say that again. He establishes our justified identity, and it is only through faith in God. Now, Paul is establishing that with this justified identity, with this identity that we have with God, comes a divine promise. There's a promise attached with the fact that we are seen as righteous before God. And just like righteousness, you cannot earn this promise. You cannot do enough to obtain it or inherit it. The promise can only come through faith, faith in God specifically. And the Apostle Paul then extends what he sees is that we don't have faith in the promise itself, just the promise, but we have faith in the character of the one who made the promise. If we see this linear progression of chapter 4, I believe it would look a lot like this to some degree. God-given identity in faith leads to God-given promise in faith. And we have to understand what is this word faith, because I think we hear it a lot. But biblical faith, faith is lived out trust in God's character and promises. And that's what we're going to see this morning with Abraham. Now, much like I said last week, Paul is continuing this thought off of what he has previously said, that being with Abraham, being his primary example, that while he did some great things in faithful obedience to God, Abraham was still a sinner, just like you and me. He did not, in fact, he could not earn his salvation or his favor with God by doing good works or keeping the law to perfection because, at the end of the day, it is impossible. We all fall short of the glory of God. And it is only out of God's gracious character that anyone is declared as righteous. So please go back and watch that sermon if you haven't because it plays a big part into what we're talking about this morning. If you missed it, and I can't recap it all, but Paul is drawing a continuation of thought from the first part in this chapter to the second part. With that, let us dig into the verses this morning and turn to Romans chapter 4. Are you all there? I didn't hear any pages flipping. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. All right, let's get started. Chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherence of, if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verses 13 to 16 can be looked at as Paul doing the same thing he did in the first part of chapter 4. Just as justification cannot be earned in a legal sense, legally by keeping the law or doing good works, the promise of God our inheritance that we have in Jesus, the favor that we have with him, cannot be earned either. Specifically, the promise that we see between God and Abraham. He is going to use this as his primary argument and example. God's righteousness and promise are a package deal. They come together, and it is all wrapped up in the bow of faith. So in the same posture, Paul's revealing to his audience that it was by faith which again is lived out trust in God's promise and his character, 
that Abraham received through the righteousness of faith, meaning he receives the promise because he's seen like his, God sees him as his son, Jesus. And therefore, Jesus is a part of the promise, so we are a part of the promise when we are in Christ. And he looks specifically at Genesis 12 when the covenant is established between God and Abraham. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. When Paul refers us to this passage, it is to point to the moment God called Abraham. Known as Abram at that point, Abraham had, not, had done nothing to earn God's favor or promise or calling at this point. But what Abraham does, if we look at it carefully, is quite remarkable. When Abraham is called by God to leave his home, leave his security, leave his country, leave his family, his safety, even his financial well-being because he's with his father in his father's house. It was very common at the time to stay with your family if your family was established because that was your survival. Abraham's faith started the moment that he left all that. The second God called him and he obeyed in faith, that's when it started for him. Being, that being our first example of how trust is lived out when God called them. And this is a big deal because I think for us, we can't really grasp this concept as much today because you and I, we can move very much, especially in Las Vegas. This is a very transient city. People come in and out all the time. But in this time, it was almost suicide to leave all of that because you had no idea what was going to happen next. Uh, for example, I left Wisconsin with $1,800 in my bank account and no job when I moved here. That's wild. I look back at that, I'm like, what was I doing? It was, it was nuts. But part of me knew I had a plan B because I knew if it didn't work out, I could always go back home. I knew I could go back to my family. I knew that they would take me, take me back in and things would work out. I knew that I was safe. I had a safety net. But Abraham wouldn't have had a plan B. So this is remarkable because looking at this, God called them to leave something behind. And perhaps many of us can recall an encounter in our life, in our faith journey, where God has called us to leave something behind. I think one of the things that we can first take from Abraham is this. In an act of faith, has God called you to leave something, someone, or somewhere? This isn't just bad things. I think of people immediately think this is something bad when we associate it, but this can be good things that God has called you to leave. But sometimes it, 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 is, it is bad things, but sometimes it's people. Sometimes it's family. Like we see Abraham in this situation, it's his family, it's his security, maybe even when he wa- what he wanted at the time. Maybe he had to give up his dreams for his own life, his vision for his own life and what he wanted. By the way, this isn't the world's way of leaving something. We live in this high cancel culture now where it's, if you've wronged me, we get rid of you. But no, this is a call of obedience that will shape us more into the image of Christ and more to the purpose God has for each of us. For example, when I moved to Las Vegas, I left my family in Wisconsin. All my family still lives in Wisconsin. And that was really hard. I didn't even realize how hard that was going to be on me when it happened. And I assure you, I didn't move here to become a pastor. That wasn't in my plan or what I thought was going to happen. But when I vividly heard the call to ministry, so many things began to make sense because I'm not, I'm not sure 
I would have become a pastor in Wisconsin. I'm just being honest. I, I, God can do anything for sure, but I don't think that's what would have happened if I would have stayed in Wisconsin. It seemed that God worked things out pretty perfectly that I would be standing up here in front of you all in Las Vegas, which is still a wild thing to think to me. But like Pastor Tim said a couple weeks ago, even when I did hear the call to ministry, I had to remove some people from my life. I had to leave some people from my life. I had to leave some things in my life, and it wasn't all bad. But like Pastor Tim said a couple weeks ago, I didn't spitefully remove people, but there were some relations that God revealed to me that for a season, I needed to remove them in order to walk closer with the Lord. We all at some point will have this moment, and I'm going to kind of put it out there this morning, what is God asking you to leave behind or remove from your life as a step of faith? And again, maybe it's good things. Maybe it's turning off that Netflix account for a little while and spending more intentional time in Bible reading and prayer. Maybe it's removing social media. Maybe it's removing news media and all these influential entertainment outlets and filling your life with the things of God. Or maybe it's spending intentional time with your spouse or your family in prayer. Maybe it's reprioritizing your schedule. Maybe it's looking at your schedule to make church, prayer, Bible reading, serving, evangelizing, all those wonderful things, community group. Maybe it's looking at your schedule and saying, I need to remove these things in order to make God a priority in my life. Verse 13 follows on the same track throughout Romans. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul says that the promise in Genesis 12 was not obtained through the law. When God called them, it wasn't about this legal religious tradition. The promise contained that not only would Abraham have an heir, a son, but that through his bloodline would come the ultimate offspring that would be the heir of the world. And who is the heir of the world that would bless all nations? When in doubt, say, Jesus, there we go. Absolutely. The heir of the world, the promise, the, the true offspring that would bless all nations would be Jesus, and he would come through Abraham's line. And Paul is saying that this didn't occur because Abraham kept the law or earned it or through being good enough, but that it was through the righteousness of faith. It would be through the continued arc of Genesis in chapters 15, 17, and 22, God promises to Abraham all of these following things when we look at what God is promising to Abraham. He promises him offspring, fatherhood of a nation, an everlasting covenant, and land of his own. Scholar Daniel Doriani compares this promise as restoring the privileges that Adam and Eve lost in the garden in the beginning of Genesis when we read Genesis 1 through 3. Through Adam, we see that all humanity, i.e. offspring, have been cursed by the impacts of sin which brings death. We see that the relationship or covenant is broken between humanity and God through Adam's sin, and they lost the land that God gave them to steward and be guardians over, and that's the Garden of Eden. But now we see God doing exactly what his character has shown to be in the restoration of all of these things through the covenant he makes with Abraham. I thought that was kind of cool to see how God ties everything to the beginning and what his original plan and purpose was. Romans 4, 13 through 14, verse 14, For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. We see that Paul is pointing back 
to what we learned about last week and that Abraham could not have obtained this promise from God through following the law because Abraham was a sinner too. And Abraham was guilty of breaking the law. Let's, let's revisit it for a second. Abraham, if you remember, wild history. Abraham gives his wife to Sarah, or gives his wife Sarah to Pharaoh to save his own life. He questions God. He has a child with Sarah's servant because they try to fulfill God's promise through their own power and their own timing. And then he gets rid of Hagar, the servant, and Ishmael, the child, when he does have his promised son with Sarah, when he has Isaac. So he does some pretty terrible things. He does some bad things that are clear that he breaks the law. And like verse 14 says, if it was according to keeping the law, well, then faith is null and the promise is void. If it's, if it's according to good works and trying to earn it, there's no point in faith and the promise is broken. Because if it's dependent on that, we have all broken it. We have all fallen short in this area. And Paul, a sharp-witted apostle Paul, he's always thinking ahead on the rebuttal that he might get. And the next rebuttal coming, we see he hits it in verse 15 because you would think the Jewish Christian audience again would be like, well, then what was the point of the law? If you can't earn favor or promise through the law, what was the point of it all? Why did God give us the law? What is he doing in all this? In Romans 4.15, it says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Again, why can't it be through the law? Or what is the point of the law? And to which Paul is saying, the law brings wrath. The law brings death. God had to reveal to us what we were doing wrong to understand why we are not in the right with him. Paul actually refers to God's revelation of the law as a gift to humanity, even though it brings the harshness of death. I don't think we always think of the law that way or the Old Testament that way, but we see that point emphasized in other writings in the scriptures later in Romans. Paul writes this in Romans 7:7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And then he would write this in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 9, which I think is really cool when you pay attention to the language that he says. It's talking about Moses and when Moses receives the law and the commandments. It says, now if the ministry of death, meaning the law, carved in the letters on stone, the tablets that Moses got, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory." That's an amazing statement. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, when he received the law written on the tablets, Paul is saying that it was a glory that the ministry of death came. It was a glory that God revealed to us that we deserve death for our sin. And then God revealing to humanity that we deserve this for breaking his law, that is a beautiful thing because God didn't have to do that. But he reveals it to us in his love and his care which perhaps I think we seldom think about, but what he is saying is it is a relief that God has revealed to us what we did wrong. Think about it this way. I almost like it like this. For couples in here, or anybody who's been in any sort of relationship, friendship, whatever, probably experienced this, but I'm going to use couples because this seems to be um, the closest example I can get to it. Um, doesn't anybody find it 
wildly frustrating or irritating when your significant other is mad at you, and you say, hey, what's wrong? And they say, nothing, it's fine. And you're like, it's definitely not. Okay. And then you can feel the tension in the relationship, and you're sitting there, you're kind of looking over, kind of waiting, you're kind of like, why is she looking at me like that? Okay. All right. And tension builds up, tension builds up. And then you ask again, you go, it really seems like there's something wrong. Are you sure there's not something wrong? Nothing, it's fine. Okay. And you keep going, you keep going, and then there's silence for a little while, and then there's tension, and out of nowhere, all of a sudden, you hear, I just think it's funny when, and you're like, oh, here it comes. Right? It's so frustrating, because I'm the kind of person, like, if I do something wrong, please just tell me. Please just communicate that to me so I know how I can better the situation, remedy the situation, and do what I can. And in this situation, so it's kind of like that. The, 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 the illustration doesn't hold up completely, because in that situation, we kind of make a mockery of the whole couple dynamic. But in this, God had a very valid reason to be upset with us. And what he does is Paul is saying that the law brings wrath because it shows us where we have fallen short and what is not in alliance with God's kingdom. Paul even argues since the law cannot change a person, it actually incites us to sin even more because even though God has revealed to us that it's a sin, we still choose to do it anyway. Even though he has told us that we are not living according to his will, we still choose to sin against him. And Paul's saying, if that came in glory, if that was this glorious revelation, this amazing thing, then how much more glorious is it that we have the ministry of righteousness in the glory of Jesus? How much more amazing is it to know that we have been saved from that through the work of the cross? Because the ministry of righteousness not only justifies us, but he's saying it did what the law couldn't. It changes us. It changes us from the inside out. And we continue with verse 16. He, say that, he says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Since the law brings wrath and no one can earn the promise of God, that is why it has to depend on faith. Because faith comes through God's grace. And all of humanity, including Abraham and Abraham's offspring, specifically who Paul is talking to in this context, have been imprisoned by the stain of sin. When the promise is resting on the gift of faith, it makes it possible that all who have not kept the law or were not born into the Jewish law, Jew and Gentile, they can have access to the process, to the promise that comes to those who believe in Jesus. This is glorious news. Also pointing to the fact that Abraham is the father of us all, not just Jew but Gentile as well, because of faith, not the law. Amen. Removing the legal separation that the Jew and the Gentile once had. He's saying Jesus has unified us, not separated us. Galatians 3.22 says, But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Romans 9.8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh, meaning just the bloodline, the heritage of Israel, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Because of what Paul is saying here, it means that you and me, we can be in the family of God. 
We have more of a tie to each other. For those who are in Christ in this room, you and I have more of a tie to each other regardless of social status, experience, diversity, background, all those things. We have more in common, more in tie with each other than anybody else in the world that we meet on the street, no matter how similar they seem to us because of Jesus. Now, the next five verses, Romans 4, 17 through 22, he, he takes this saving faith and he describes it in action by looking at Abraham. This saving faith and trust in God who keeps his promises and gives life, not only spiritually, he's saying God doesn't only just have spiritual promises, but he has physical, real, tangible promises as well, literally by creating life, by bringing the dead to life, and this is what we see through the offspring of Abraham. Again, he's describing saving faith by looking at Abraham, and saving faith is trust in the God who keeps his promises and gives life. And looking at verse 17 through 19, he says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. I'll address that in a second, so everybody calm down. Um, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. The statement, I have made you the father of many nations, is a recall to the history of Abraham and specifically to the Jewish context of names have very important meaning in the Jewish context. Today in our culture, names don't really have meaning to us anymore. We kind of name people just because it sounds cool. We're like, oh, I'm going to name my son Brick. It's like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. But he's saying that Abraham's name was originally Abram which meant exalted father. And remember, Abraham and Sarah did not have children at this point. So walking around in this culture, this was not an easy name to have because culture had significant social status tied to having offspring and family descendants. Then God does him a favor, and he changes his name to Abraham. And you want to know what Abraham means? It means father of a multitude. Thanks, right? No pressure there. And at that point, Abraham and Sarah are, they're seasoned. They're seasoned. They're mature in their, in their age. I mean, Abraham has to attempt his best Al Pacino. Am I right? Look up Al Pacino. You'll, you'll figure it out. Moving on. Um, <laughs> but at this point, they're older. Not to mention, they had been waiting on God and the fulfillment of God's promise for about 24 years at this point. Talk about faith. Talk about patience. Talk about obedience. I know, I don't know about you, but I know for me, I pray for five minutes and I'm kind of like, okay, God, where are you? Where's, where's this thing that I'm really praying to you about right now? 24 years? Believing that God's going to bless you with a son? And then could you imagine just seeing yourself getting older and older and your circumstances changing? You're like, this, this isn't going to happen. How could this happen? I think he's teaching us this. Faith is often seasoned with a journey of patience. Maybe you've stopped praying for something or stopped living out obedience in a certain area of your life or a certain walk with Christ because you've been waiting. Maybe you've stopped praying for that family member to get saved. Maybe that you've stopped praying for that relationship to be mended or whatever it is. 
I offer you some encouragement. Keep praying. Keep, keep communing with the God of the, Lord, of the world. Keep, keep walking in faith and obedience. It's hard and the season may last much longer than we ever imagined, but God is faithful to keep his promises. And this isn't a pitch to say God will give you whatever you want if you pray hard enough or if you have enough faith, but I do know that God fulfills all things in accordance with his kingdom purposes, his desires, and he fulfills our desires when our hearts truly delight in Christ being king over every area of our lives. He is faithful in all of that. But Paul refers to this saying in light of that, the God whom Abraham believed is the God who does this. He gives this really important piece here to say, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. We have to think about this for a second. One, not only just spiritually speaking, but physically speaking, remember Jesus' ministry? He was bringing people back to life from the dead. This is the God that brings back the dead, the God who livens dead souls. This is the God that when there was absolutely nothing, it was only his existence, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, he spoke light into the darkness, and there was light. That's astounding. This is the God of the universe in whom we believe and whom we serve. We see in verses 18 and 19, Paul is pointing to the reality of the situation. People think that being a Christian, that we, they think that we're not a realist. I think, I think that's usually quite common when associated with being religious or having faith or things like that. They think we're not a realist or we're blind to the facts of our circumstances. That you, if you have optimism... It's this blind optimism that has no consideration of the reality of the situation. And Paul is actually debunking that. Paul is saying in verses 18 and 19 that the reality of Abraham's circumstances are very real, and Abraham actually takes them into account. He does this. This is what Abraham does when evaluating his circumstances. It says, he had no reason to hope, humanly speaking. It doesn't make sense to believe that this would actually happen. He has no children at this point so far, so far, so how can he be the father of many nations when he hasn't even had one child yet? He has considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. I am not saying that you are almost dead or you're good as dead if you're almost 100 years old. Scripture's saying that. But <laughs> I think as we see with Abraham, God shows it doesn't matter what age you are, you still have purpose. He can still fulfill something in your life to belong, to have purpose, and to live out his, his plan for you in faith and obedience. I think one thing um, specifically in the church today is the beauty of when you have sat with saints who have been walking with Jesus for a long time, there is so much joy and so much to learn from others that have walked with Jesus a lifetime. He considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He considered the fact that his wife has not yet had a child. So Paul is literally showing that when you look at this on paper, it seems impossible. It seems impossible that they would have one child, let alone many, that God is saying. And Abraham considered all of these very present realities. And I think what this is teaching us is bring the reality of your circumstances to God. I think people think when we come to God with things, we have to church it up and kind of make it not as real as it's supposed to be. It's like, oh, God, everything's fine, everything's good, everything's super awesome all the time, 110% Christian stuff. Yeah, wow. And at the end of the day, I think what he's saying is, God already knows your heart and knows your circumstances, but you can come to him because he delights in carrying your burdens. He wants to commune with you, 
not only to comfort you, and now in the fact that the promise isn't that God is going to give you everything that you have ever wanted, but the promise is that God sees you as perfect through the record of Jesus, and that he is doing things for your best good and his ultimate glory, and you are one of his people. So he will never leave you nor forsake you in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of the bad that's going on. In the midst of all those present realities, what did Abraham do? Look at the text, verse 20 to 21. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Paul is being specific to this moment here because if we look at Abraham's life, like we just did earlier, did Abraham have moments where he wavered? Did Abraham have moments where he wavered? Absolutely. He stumbled, he fell, he sinned, and that is the beauty of it, because maybe you need to hear this this morning, but some of us still have a legalistic view of God, even in Christ, and we think that the reason I'm not being blessed in a certain area of my life is because God is holding my doubts against me, he's holding my sins against me, he's holding the times I failed against me, and that is what Paul is trying to drive out of us. There's real consequences to sin for sure. Please, don't don't get me wrong. The scriptures even say there are very real life consequences. As a Christian, if you are committing willful, volitional sin, it can be a very real obstacle in your way that keeps you from experiencing God to the fullest capacity, from communing with him, from receiving blessings. Sometimes scripture alludes to that, absolutely. But if you are in Christ, hear this. You will never lose union with the God of the universe because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. You will never lose union with him. So in this moment in verse 20 and 21, Paul is referencing a specific moment between Abraham and God. He is referring to Genesis 18 when an angel of the Lord appeared to Sarah and said that she would have a child in the next year. Does anybody remember what Sarah does when she hears this from God? She laughs. She laughs at God. How real is that? Like, I think the Bible gets so real sometimes. And she's like, no, I didn't laugh, God. When he calls her out on it, he's like, nah, you definitely did. You, you laughed at me. But in the midst of that, Paul's saying that in this moment, Abraham did not waver when he considered all those things. He still acted in faith. He still did what God commanded him to do. And it says he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Have you been giving glory to God in your life right now? In the midst of your circumstances, good or bad, have you been giving glory to God? It seems that when things are good, we, we give them some glory, but we tend to forget because life's going so well. And when things are bad, we don't give them glory. We, we kind of give them a lot of complaints. You know what the amazing thing is in, in all that is, though? He's still there. He's still there. He doesn't leave us even when we are doubting and complaining. And now I'm not saying when we go through bad seasons, when you're going through real trials, please don't hear me saying if, if you're going through loss or pain or trial, Please, please don't hear me calling that complaining because God wants you to come to him in that. I'm not saying when you go through seasons like that that you're, you're, you're not appropriately mourning or carrying those burdens or going through trials that are very serious and there's hurt there. And the, po- the, the posture stays the same even in the midst that God has not left you. You can bring these to him in tears of pain or when things are good, come in tears of joy and rejoice Or sometimes in tears of mourning, there are seasons that we come to our God and Father when we are mourning and sorrowful. And you can come to him with all of that and trust him. We can live like Abraham, 
which is this, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. One of the things I wake up and I, I pray to myself regularly is, Lord, at, like, like, convince me. Show me to live a life of what it looks like to live fully convinced of your promises, of who you are and what you have done in my life. I read a funny commentary note this week. One scholar had said that Abraham continued to trust in God to give him a son because he continued to have marital relations with his wife. I was like, oh, real tough sacrifice on that one. Twist my arm, God. (laughs) Honey, God said we have to have a kid, so moving on. Romans 4, to 25, that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised, him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. We're going to bring this puppy home, all right? You guys are ready to leave, I can tell. That is why it is all tied to faith. And what, it, and what did we say faith was at the beginning of this? Anybody remember? Faith is lived out trust in God's character and promises. Church, I can't leave this passage without saying that obviously as we end here that Paul is making this beautiful tie connecting Abraham, the father of faith, and Jesus, the object of our faith. Jesus is the object of our faith. He is the one that we put our trust and belief in. But many preachers have damaged the example of Abraham and multiple other moments in the scriptures trying to sell this posture that if you have enough faith, if you have enough belief that God will act in any way that benefits you and your situation and what you want. I.e., some of you in here, this passage might strike home for you because maybe you can't have children naturally. And unfortunately, someone has said, using this kind of passage, well, Abraham had faith and God gave him a son, so if you have enough faith, God will give you a child. That is not what this passage is saying. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying something more profound. Is God absolutely able and capable of doing that? 100%. Absolutely. God can perform miracles. But what Paul is saying in all of this, he's getting at the redemptive righteousness and promise of God is accessed only through faith, which is rooted in his grace. And his grace is tied to his unbelievable, incredible, and infinitely loving character. None of this can be obtained through the law. We can't earn it. We can't do enough for it. God is not promising to you that all your hopes, dreams, and and material wants will be fulfilled, but he is promising you this. He will give you a heart that delights in Jesus. He will give you more of himself and whatever you need in order to become more like Jesus. This is what God is promising you. Jeremiah 29.11 says this, for, the know, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, because the God of the universe has raised our Lord Jesus from the dead, we are sealed, signed, and delivered in his righteousness, and we are saved in an eternal bond with him forever and ever. No one can ever take that away. And that is why we look at Jesus. Because it says it wasn't just written for Abraham. This was written for people of every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. It will be counted to us who believe in Jesus that he was raised from the dead and he defeated Satan, sin, and death. Church, what I think Paul is getting at, especially with the audience he is writing to, is this. The Jewish Christian audience of the time were still adding rules to the Gentiles to be accepted into the family of God. 
to you and me. And today, if we're honest, we do the same thing. We add stuff to other people around us all the time to look more like, to make them look more like we want them to look, to be Christian. Earlier, I shared with you this. I think this is what Paul is getting at. I always, called my, I always call my dad because I trust he is going to pick up the phone. But believe it or not, there have been times and moments that he hasn't picked up the phone because he's a human. He's a human being. But I still call him every single time. I still trust him to pick up that phone if my life depended on it. Our lives depend on the grace of God and Jesus. And because of what he has done through the cross, God has secured the connection that, it sounds cheesy, but God will always pick up the phone. He will never leave us. He always answers for his sons and daughters. He is faithful, and we should give him such praise, such love, such adoration, and glory for that. And it is because of that, that by faith, we live that through trusting him in all areas of our lives to be shaped into his image for his glory our good, and his everlasting kingdom. Let us pray. Lord, it is good to give thanks and glory to you to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So Lord, we thank you. Lord, we thank you for these moments that help us orient our hearts toward you. May this passage in your word compel us to the vision and purpose of life you have for us in faith. Help us make choices and decisions that build sound character and lay the foundation for a lifetime of godliness. Let us not find our identity in works or the law or good deeds or worldly identity, but let our identity be rooted in faith that results in bearing fruit for your kingdom. Thank you for the promise that one day your enemies will perish and all evildoers shall be scattered. Thank you that resting in that promise we can work for justice and righteousness today loving good, and hating all forms of evil. Lead us to live for your glory and not our own. In Jesus' name, amen.